governments really matter. <laughs> you know, they, they actually have this incredible power to make decisions really quickly, it turns out, um, and to shape the story and the confidence that, that people have um, in, in managing a crisis. version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to The Remakers. It's lovely to have you here for our very last episode of the year and what has been kind of another strange year and I feel like maybe this is setting too low a bar but if we're listening to this We are alive. We have survived nearly two years of a global pandemic, and that is no small thing. So as we move into the sort of summer holidays and this time, which for some people is the busiest time of year, but for many people is also an opportunity to kind of unplug and get a bit recharged, that you are feeling the vibes of restoration, whatever that looks like for you. In today's episode of The Remakers, we actually wanted to take a moment to reflect on what have we learned? What are the themes that have really stood out for us this year? And we couldn't have a conversation about what we have learned in 2020 or 2021 without talking about COVID, but it's a different kind of conversation about COVID, I hope, to the ones that we we often hear. So it's really what are the things that we want to take with us? What are the themes that we don't want to lose? And then what are some of the other kind of broader ideas, lessons, insights from the year that we've had? Joining me today on the show is my ever wise and lovely and funny and human colleague, Dr. Millie Rooney. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Thanks, everybody. everybody welcome to the show it's our very last one for the year and for this first season of the remakers podcast so i am thrilled today to be finishing like we started with my most excellent colleague millie rooney millie welcome thanks for being here with me it's very nice to be here lily and we wanted to think about what could we reflect on that would be useful? What have we really been thinking about, learning about, grappling with this year? What are some of the themes that have kind of come up for us in our work that we think are really relevant and kind of universal for a lot of us, right? And as much as we really kind of hate to go into this topic in December after the year and a half, two years that we have all had, we couldn't really ignore COVID, it was just there. It has cast the die for um, so much of our experience over the last one to two years. And we think that it's actually important to capture some of the lessons for ourselves before it just fades into a blur, before the politicians begin their own war of the narrative battle as we go into an election next year. 
and we know that you know there's going to be the story written by big tech there's going to be the story written by the anti-vaxxing people there's going to be like and so what is the story that we actually want to take with us out of this experience and it's a weird one to try to generalize too much because as the adage went you know we're weathering the same storm but we definitely haven't all been in the same boat and so just acknowledging that right from the top but the things that we wanted to highlight here today are really about the kind of big picture stuff that has been a mix of really good and bad and blessings and learnings and um, things that we would never want to repeat and things that actually we really hope we can take with us. And so we just thought we'd start there and unpack a few of those together and then um, think maybe a little bit more broadly about the year that has been and where we're at. How does that sound to you, Millie? That sounds great. (laughs) All right. Um, So we actually started a a blog in June of 2020, which is a whole year and a half ago that was called Lessons from the Pandemic Phase One. And I think in retrospect, this was really written in what I've come to understand as the surge phase of the crisis. Um, The we're all in this together phase of the crisis was still very fresh. And we wanted to try to capture some of the insights, but also some of the feelings from that time. And so we said, you know, we need to tell our own story of what's mattered, what's worked and what we want to build on. Because if we don't write the story of what made the difference, others will. And so there were a few very high level insights. I'll pop a link to that in your show notes, but it's things like we are all connected, the power of a bigger us and of public institutions, respecting the science, a better kind of leadership is possible. We can reimagine work and actually our economies and the role of government can really rapidly change. So I think all of that is still true and has kind of carried forward. Um, if anyone's interested to read that, it's not a very long piece. You can kind of check it out. Um, But I think that there have been some developments since then, and I kind of want to explore a little bit of that. um, And I think, I think, Lily, it's also really important. um, Part of what we were talking about in setting this up is it's it's actually some of us are having trouble remembering, you know, what has happened over the past two years, and it feels like such a blur. But twenty twenty was actually very different to twenty twenty one, and I don't know about you, but you know. Full disclosure, I'm on the paradise island <laughs> of, of Lutrawita, Tasmania, and I have been, you know, very minorly inconvenienced by COVID. So, you know, I just want to make that really clear from, from the outset. Um, but even I am at the end of the year just just feeling tired and a, a bit amnesic, if that's a word, a, about what has happened. And I think such extraordinary things have happened, as you say, good and bad, that that we do need to 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 hold that story for ourselves um, to, to see us through the next phase. Yeah, definitely. And as we try to move into rebuild and we have these curveballs still coming at us like, oh my gosh, there's another new variant. What is that going to mean? Um, you know, the, the desire to just put it all behind us and rush forward. And there was a great book and I will find it and put a link to it in the show notes about how do we um, go forward from here? What are the lessons that we really need to learn? And like the number one lesson is don't forget the lessons. Like don't be so eager to just, okay, well, all of that's behind us. Let's, let's move on that we actually aren't prepared for the next thing or that we haven't taken the good stuff with us. So, um, yes. So I think the first thing that we kind of just wanted to highlight was actually like one of the things that we really liked, and let's start by talking about the things that we really liked that, that rose to the top in all of this, is actually like the prominence of care has been 
really refreshing. You know, prior to COVID, we um, we talked about how care was so invisible and undervalued, and there's still a long way to go. But turns out, market fundamentalism is not what gets you through a crisis. Rugged individualism is not what gets you through a crisis um, of this nature. You actually need that, what became the cliche of we're all in this together, to really become operationalized into policy. You, you can't have a healthy economy if people are dropping like flies. And so we lost this um, ridiculous thing of the priority is the economy at all costs and people are just fodder for the economy. And we turned that on its head. And I think that was a really positive and powerful paradigm shift. And I think as, as part of that, you know, we had the, um, you know, disaster payments for those taking, uh, you know, time off to self-isolate that started in Victoria and then is ongoing in various ways. But I think that was also the recognition that like care, we talked about this before, but, you know, care is not just an individual thing. You can't, you can't, you you need to, as a community, provide the frameworks for care. And we we did it. And, you know, some people missed out. It wasn't perfect, but we did it in a really radically um, new way. And we started to talk so much more about what it means and who was caring and um, who was being cared for and, and how that looked. And I think, you know, certainly as a carer of myself in a particular way, that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. What was exciting to me as a sort of dual American Australian citizen was noticing that the emphasis here was on the big picture about, well, can people afford to stay home? You know, uh, rather than are they wearing a mask or are they not wearing a mask? And we're just going to hate all those people who don't wear a mask and we're going to keep it completely at the level of the individual. There was a real emphasis on the bigger systems and structures that um, enable people to actually protect themselves and therefore like protect the community. Um, I mean, JobKeeper, like that was huge. When I tell my American friends and family that that big one-off payment that they got once or twice and were so excited about was basically what people could get here once a fortnight um, to stay connected to their employer, they they just, their jaws drop in disbelief, much less that that was done under a conservative right-leaning government. So um, there's this op-ed in the lefty hotbed political paper. Uh, it's a News Limited publication, so News Limited online. JobKeeper showed we can spend our way out of a crisis and turned recession into a political choice. JobKeeper was so successful at cushioning the blow of COVID, it's going to pose some very awkward questions for the government. I mean, basically, it was a half a trillion, half a trillion dollar stimulus package, like. And, it, and if recession of that kind is a political choice, that is a pretty profound insight. Now, you can argue what are the costs of that long term? Can we afford it? What would it do if we just had a magic pudding approach to money? And then you get into modern monetary theory and all these places that we're not going to go today. But this level of like, oh, it is like care is a community and it is a political challenge. And so what are the choices that we make that enable that to happen? And and where do we put our money? And, you know, that was all a very interesting shift and something that we didn't expect under this government. And, and I think that recognition of, you know, who we care for is a political choice. You know, we might not have addressed it and got it right, but we are asking those questions in a much bigger way. Yeah. And that kind of leads us to contribution because, we all want to contribute. We all we all want to feel cared for. We all want to contribute. We all want to matter and belong. And 
I think if you are in a an industry that has been traditionally low paid and low valued, um, whether that is looking after children or our people in aged care, or whether that is stacking shelves in a supermarket, um, you probably felt pretty invisible before this pandemic compared to now. I mean, look at the love that we have for teachers, which was there, but oh my gosh, when you know the the nation and many, many places around the world had to have a, the prolonged experience of not having access to teachers um, in the same way. It was like, oh my goodness. And so just that reframing from low paid to essential, you know, you are an essential service worker. Um, you are on the front line. There was a level of visibility and appreciation and care and respect that I think was, you know, it, it became a bit of a dividing line who could afford to do their job from behind a laptop and who couldn't. Um, but it, with that came an appreciation for the risk and the work that was being done to keep the thing, to keep the supermarket shelves stacked, to keep the buses running, to keep the, like all of these things just became so obvious and so visible. And, um, you know, I'm reading this book at the moment, uh, Bullshit Jobs, and it basically became really clear, like who didn't have a bullshit job, um, whose job was absolutely essential for the greater community. And I, I mean, I think, again, not to be the one who's always saying like, well, it's not that great, but, you know, I think, we are only partway down that path of recognizing that stuff. Like you saw all the um, healthcare workers saying, you know, your applause is wonderful, but how about paying us properly? How about, um, you know, making sure we've got enough leave? You know, so I think there has been this recognition of what is, what is the essential work and that's, you know, that's really wonderful and needed um, and where we take that is exactly. is kind of exciting. Exactly. And you're seeing people rethinking, oh, is my job worth it? Like, is this really how I want to spend my life? You know, so I think there's real scope for that. And I think the other point about contribution, you know, in the work I've been doing this year around the idea of the public good, hearing so much people saying, I, I want to contribute in a whole lot of different ways. And I think in that very first moment of COVID, you know, we, we all felt we were differently, but all in it together. We were all scared and uncertain and some of us were better protected than others, but we all knew that actually staying home was, was contributing, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that just taster of what it is like to do something for the collective and to contribute is something that maybe we've lost, but we've tasted it. Um, and there's real potential mm. there. And I, and I think, you know, it, it's it's possibly that it feels lost because it's become absorbed as the new normal. Because I now, you know, in I, I live in Sydney. Um, and so wherever you go, if you're in an enclosed public space, people have their masks on. Um, if you are going into a venue, you check in with your QR code. Um, if people ask to see your vaccination certificate, um, and, you know, I realize there are people objecting to all of the above, but I think the majority of people for the most part are responding cheerfully. Yes, of course, here you go. And it's these very simple things that are arguably annoying, inconvenient convenient, an invasion of privacy, all of the grounds on which you could object to them. But they're so clear that this is how you help protect your community. And it's just become part of that, you know, and I think some of those things are going to change as we, you know, progress into even higher rates of vaccination. But yes, even vaccination, the fact that we have one of the most highly vaccinated populations on earth, that they're talking about a vaccine ceiling, um, is a sign that we have had real tangible things that all of us can do in our individual lives 
to contribute. And we've known what that is and we still know what that is. And now for a lot of us, it's just become automatic and we're just doing it and we're not even thinking about it, um, which, yeah. And I think, I think that flows into the, you know, the third one of the things that, that we've, we've liked about what's going on is, has been that sense of connection. Um, and again, different communities have had different experiences of that, but the loss of connection has made us realize how much, you know, how much, um, people miss the in-between spaces, you know, the, the accidental meeting people at the supermarket or, you know, and I obviously haven't had that experience to the same extent, but, you know, talking to other people, um, and also seeing the way that we repurposed existing infrastructure to fulfill that need for connection. So two of my favorite stories, um, from Victoria were local libraries that realized that they were a place of community connection. Um, and you know, the first lockdown, I think they called something like 70,000. I might have that number wrong, but a huge number, maybe it was 7,000 either way. Um, they got their library staff to call everyone in their database over the age of 70 um, just to check in because they knew that older people use that library as a connection place. I felt like what a brilliant recognition by the library of their the role their infrastructure plays. And then another library in Victoria noticed that um, there were a whole lot of families in cars outside the library and they realised that they were accessing the internet. Um, and so what they did is they posted out internet dongles to a whole lot of families on their database so they would have external access to that community connection role. Like what a brilliant, you know, what a brilliant repurposing. And I think that's, you know, of the things we talked about, care, connection and um, uh, contribution, like the exciting bit of it for me isn't that we've got it right every time, but we've started to be so much more imaginative in how we let that stuff play out. So I think um, that's been something I've really liked and would like us to hold from from this time. Absolutely. The the innovation and the creativity and just the reframing of, okay, what really matters and how can we how can we work with what we've got um, to create something new? Was it also France that did something with the postal workers? Oh, the, I know. I love, I love postal stories. <laughs> I, mean, the, <laughs> I love the post. Send me a letter. Um, uh, France and Canada, actually, they both had, they both repurposed, similar to the libraries, and this was actually pre-COVID, they both repurposed their existing infrastructure. They realised they weren't getting many letters sent through the post and they said, well, we have, you know, someone going to every house every day. What if we offered the service of, you know, you can check on your, you know, if you live in a different state, you can check on your mum or your dad or through the postal service. And so um, we can put a link to that in the oh, show notes. So but, you know, again, yeah. it's like that reimagining as times change slowly or quickly, how do we repurpose the infrastructure that we have um, to hold on to the things that we like and to build the things that we like? Yeah. yeah. So posties and libraries, so yeah. good. <laughs> so that really flows into um a kind of what did we really learn out of this so far? And, you know, I mean, these are all learnings, but I think one of the core themes, just to say the most obvious right at the top was like, experts, they're really useful. Yay, science. Like it turns out, you know, prior to COVID, we were kind of talking about living in a post-fact world where politicians just invented whatever narrative they thought would most serve them. Turns out that might help you win elections, doesn't help you actually overcome a virus. Um, and so the, it was so refreshing in Australia to see our leaders actually turn to the experts, not politicize the advice, 
Um, in, and again, yes, there were probably degrees of doing this with, you know, skill and, and good intentions and, and they didn't get it all perfect. But it was really like, wow, we have these incredible bodies of expertise that are available to us. Imagine if we listen to them more often in more settings. Um, and, you know, of course, it wasn't just, um, you know, the kind of scientists who were employed by drug companies or being supported through private research or philanthropy. It was also government was backing the research into these vaccines nations into and so uh, the, it's been this huge collective effort where you know ironically one of the reasons that people can be skeptical of the vaccine is well it came about so quickly how did that even happen and it's like because we all threw everything we had at it and we worked together and we we leveraged that really well um so yay experts yay science yeah and i think your point there about um you know it wasn't just private money <laughs> that developed the vaccines takes us on to the other you know key learnings like governments really matter <laughs> you know they they actually have this incredible power to make decisions really quickly it turns out um and to shape the story and the confidence that that people have um in in managing a crisis um, and the institutions that, that they hold and fund, you know, our public health system, you know, that we could we could pivot on so many things, you know, and get the, you know, there's all sorts of critiques of the um, vaccine rollout. But, you know, we did have an infrastructure that could be used to do that. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I, th- I think that we've really seen the importance of government. Absolutely. I mean, our public media um, through the ABC and being able to access really trusted information, um, the the financial support that went out to people and to businesses, it, the the sense that we had a social contract and we had high degrees of social trust. We weren't resurrecting these things from the bin. We weren't looking to private philanthropy or tech CEOs to save us. We had the infrastructure and it was there and we could turn on, turn to it and figure out how to keep using it. At the same time, obviously the crisis has definitely exposed the cracks. You know, what are the cracks um, in in the labor market, in levels of financial inequality? Um, People suddenly, you know, after years, decades of advocates, everyone from the Business Council of Australia to ACOS saying we need to increase the rate of New Start, which is the unemployment payment in Australia, which is that's been renamed um, Job Seeker. But you know, suddenly overnight it was doubled. It was like, what? You mean poverty was a choice this whole time? You know, we we actually could have just doubled this a lot sooner and 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 worn the cost. So, um, you know, they've since reduced that rate, but it is still twenty five dollars more per week than it was before. And it goes to anyone under job seeker or a parenting payment, youth allowance, Oz study. So that's about 2 million or just under 2 million people in Australia who are financially um, better off. But those cracks, um, you know, that are already there, they feel deeper, they feel more painful. The impact on casuals who have been left out of um, paid sick leave for a very long time. Um, We found an article that said that casuals were eight times more likely to lose work than people engaged in, you know, than than permanent staff. Um, So we've really seen that, you know, and you can talk more about, you know, the universities, but people losing, losing staff, not being able to afford to take sick leave, those kinds of just, inequalities in the system. And we've begun to address some of them, but we have a long way to go. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that point you made about poverty as a choice, one of the sort of most heartbreaking uh, 
things that I've seen is that, you know, when when um, job seeker was raised in some of the poorest communities, what we saw was that money was going on food. You know, it wasn't being spent on I don't know, whatever, like it was just on survival, you know, um, and that's that's shocking that that um, our welfare rate is is keeping people in poverty. You know, that's not what it's for. And we we saw, you know, the government government has the power to change that. We as taxpayers have the power to change that. Um, so I think that that's really important to note that, um, you know, we might talk a bit later about in contrast to corporations, a lot of them that were receiving JobKeeper, actually that went on million dollar bonuses to CEOs. So, you know, there's some, this crisis has exposed these cracks of inequality. Um, And then, you know, talking about the impact on casual workers, you know, just the precarious nature of of so many people. Um, And, you know, the university sector is one of the areas I know best. Um, And they lost 20% of their casual staff. And that's a, that's a group that, you know, is paid relatively well and still, you know, this, the precarity of that compared to say if you were a casual barista or, you know, someone on, on less money. So I think, again, it, um, it showed if you were already precarious, <laughs> life just got even more precarious. If you were already safe like me and had a job that was Zoomable, um, you know, it was a bit annoying, but, I, you know, I, I still was there. Um, and I think, again, that inequality of it's impacting young people really significantly. And one, because they're more likely to have the casual work. But I think there's, um, you know, other ways to think about intergenerational inequality that this exposes of, you know, loss of that freedom of joyful, easy life. And, you know, we actually can't really change that, but I think it's it's worth noting, you know. So there's all sorts of inequality that is being revealed and inequality that is being created through this crisis. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think, you know, another crack that's been really um, highlighted has been the role of privatization yeah. and where that has weakened us, you know. So, um we will probably remember if we can bear to think back to it um, when Melbourne had its big second wave outbreak. Is it the second wave? I'm not even sure if I've got that right. But the first, from, I think. Okay, yeah. from the from the privatized hotel security, you know, poorly paid, very poorly trained security guards um, in yeah. in the Melbourne working hotel. multiple jobs. Yeah in the Melbourne hotel quarantine system and the tremendous outbreak that that led to and all of that suffering. We've also seen in aged care, the privatization of aged care and the poor conditions for staff, um, the poor practices leading to a bunch of unnecessary suffering and unnecessary death, you know, and, and the lack of accountability that you would have um, from that compared to uh, a sort of public system and and where things were publicly run, they were, and I know this is a bit of a big generalization to make, um, but it where things were publicly run, they were generally better run um, in that respect. So and that, more, more transparent. More transparent, think. more accountable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and look, I think finally, just to, to kind of look to the future, you know, um, what what are we kind of taking with us? What 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 is the last sort of 
core lesson from this whole experience that we want to talk about here and now. And I mean, this is one conversation. It's not the be all and end all of books and tomes that will be written about the pandemic. But we really have seen that anything is possible and change can happen overnight. And as Kelly O'Shaughnessy said on the podcast, you know, the future is not a linear extension of the past. We, we're not looking at a linear extension of the status quo. And that has been unsettling. It has been by definition disruptive, but it's also been a really creative time for humanity, I think, to kind of go like, oh my gosh, things really can change on a dime. And so we have a lot more agency actually in how we respond to crisis than perhaps I personally believed before this happened. Mm. I mean, I think it's, you know, everyone says it, but it's just such a sign of what we could do for the climate crisis, you know, and and I think recognising that the change has been good and bad and, and some unsure, you know, like who would have thought those of us who could would all be working from home? Who would have thought that we'd all happily flash, most of us happily flash a vaccine passport, log in, um, wear a mask in the summer, you know, none of that was... Yeah, you know, we, we just wouldn't have believed it. Who would have believed that a conservative government would provide job keep job seeker in such an extraordinary way? You know, yeah. I think that who would have known that we could feel, you know, it comes and goes, but the whole world is affected, and we've known that about climate change intellectually. But who knew that you you could leave Australia and not get back in? Yeah, you know, for Australians, that's. That's yeah. wildly radical and wildly different. Yeah. Who knew that um, it would be like amazing to think that you could get into Western Australia or Queensland from another state or in the Tasmania. country. <laughs> or Tasmania. Absolutely. You know, that yeah. it would be faster to get to the UK than it would be to yeah. travel to somewhere else in your own country. Yeah. And these things are not necessarily good. I don't really have a judgment on that, but they're radically different Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and happen so fast. Yeah. Oh, I mean, pivoting to online learning for, you know, every school child, so much, so much changed so quickly. Um, And like you said, some of it is good. Some of it we will want to carry on forward some of the advances in say telehealth or whatever. And, And then there are things that we really want to make sure, you know, we don't just kind of automatically um, except going forward into the future. So, you know, and, and then in terms of what we are still maybe working to get right or, or learning and, and, and want to carry on with us, you know, it is that noticing that everybody matters. And so we really do need to vaccinate the entire world as best we can, as quickly as we can. And obviously the latest variant is just driving that point home. Um, it's that real sense that I'm not safe until you're safe, until everyone is safe. And I think, you know, that's the really clear, obvious, tangible, pressing thing we can do. And then all the underlying stuff that carries with that, you know, if everyone matters, it's not just about getting vaccines. It's about making sure everybody has access to safe water and, you know, medical care for other things and uh, action on climate change. Um, And I think this is just a very, again, it's just that very tangible example of, all of the things we've been talking about, you know, um, that I, I think, yeah, is, is something that we need to carry forward really and notice. Yeah. And again, it's not to say that we've gotten it all right, but I think the attention that is being paid to it, you know, where at the moment you have um, experts from big business through to aid organizations urging, you know, the Morrison government to spend 400 million more on, you know, vaccinating and vaccinations in developing countries. And it's it's just this, 
it's put the spotlight on things that needed to be prioritized for a long time um, in terms of our approach to, to how we look after one another. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's just been important. I think the next one is really that um, democracy matters. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I know. What a, well, what a statement. You heard it first here. Yeah, I know. Right. Something else that I think we, you know, we have learned and do need to take forward and is blindingly obvious um, is that democracy matters, right? And it matters for, well, for many reasons and in a few different ways. Um, And I think, you know, the public good work that I've done this year has shows people are desperate for democracy to work and democracy, I think, you know, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of what democracy actually means, but, you know, it's that combination of democracy. Government, well, basically, government acting in the people's interests um, in a in a way that is accountable and enables us to participate in various ways. And I think one of the things that uh, you know kind of makes me uncomfortable that we have seen um, during COVID times is groups like sectors like the military and the corporate sector. Um, taking up quite a lot of public space and public response to the crisis. So, um, you know, you've seen the the military in some of the kind of vaccine rollout stuff. You've seen the um, police in, you know, around the lockdown stuff. Now they are part of the state, but they're still sort of separate in some ways. Um, and then, you know, we saw things like uh, the gas-led recovery with all the kind of gas operations. Um, and yes. so it's, it's, a, it's a visible, you know, I don't want to say it's a visible takeover of our, our democracy, but it's, a, it's why are those voices being prioritised ahead of, say, the social sector, um, you know, civil society groups who are real experts in a lot of like, well, how would you roll out a vaccine in XYZ communities? So I think, um, you know, it's not, I don't even know if I would say it's good or bad, the involvement of different sectors, but I think the level of um, the level of involvement and the need to be really led by people and, and rather than corporations and military has shown us like democracy really matters and um, how we publicly use our democracy matters. Yeah. And these are still very much live debates. And in a sense, we're still swimming in it, right? So totally. it's hard, it's hard yeah. to zoom out too far right. and try to read, you know, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? I think that we'll still be doing that analysis as a, as a collective for a long time to come. Um, but it's definitely been one of the things that I think we're still working to, yeah. to get right and, and to keep strengthening. And need to notice, you know, we don't actually yeah. have to have, I think that's part of what to me is often valuable about these conversations is I think we need to be able to have spaces to talk things out. Um, all of us, you know, you and I get to be here on the podcast to do that but actually to think things through without that polished idea because we are going through this moment of great turmoil and disruption and so having that space to speak aloud so we can travel together on that journey of understanding I think is important. You know, maybe that's what democracy should actually all be about. Democracy is a conversation, as Saffron Zomra said on the podcast earlier this year. Absolutely. And really, you know, the last point, and again, you could kind of file it under the blindingly obvious, is Fairness matters. And it, you know, so 
where I think we fell down during COVID was when there was a sense that there were rules for some and rules for others. And there were, you know, benefits for some and restrictions for others. And if you had the money, you could buy your way in and maybe bypass the worst of the hotel quarantine in Australia when it had, you know, has had, we've had very hard borders up. Um, this, I don't think a huge deal was necessarily made of this in the Mainstream media, maybe I just kind of miss some of it, but you would see reports of, you know, so-and-so multimillionaire business person or so-and-so celebrity or, um, and, and just kind of irks people, right? It's like, well, I haven't been able to fly overseas. I haven't been able to see my mom, my, my family, my grandma, you know, why is somebody else getting special treatment just because? They have the money. And then, you know, we've talked a little bit about JobKeeper and, you know, for so long we've had the demonization of people on any kind of um, income support payment, right? And, you know, they'll just take advantage, da, 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 da. I think that that will hopefully be one of the things that we'll be less inclined to do following this crisis. But where we actually saw people taking advantage of income support payments were big corporations whose profits went up and yet we're still able to access JobKeeper. And maybe that's part of the design flaw of just having to rush something through in that moment of crisis and not necessarily, you know, wanting to make it easy for people to access, right? But um, definitely like to, to know that their profits were skyrocketing and they were still, you know, taking money that was designed to go to people who were hurting, um, I think is something that irked people. Yeah. And when we were talking about big money, right? Like something around, you know, one of the things I've read said $12 billion went to businesses that didn't record a shortfall due to COVID in Australia. Um, and this was earlier on. Um, and 4.6 billion went to businesses that actually increased profits. And some of these businesses did return a lot of that, which I thought like bravo and well done. Um, some didn't. And some of these CEOs were getting, you know, bonuses of close to a million dollars. You know, talk about the cracks and the inequality. Um, you know, think what we could have done with a million dollars. Yeah. And really that's up. just crisis profiteering. Like if you happen to be in a business that does well during the pandemic, I don't think that's an inherently evil thing. You know, people need to order their goods online. You sell goods online. Good for you. Like, but if you are taking money that is designed for people who are hurting to give yourself a million dollar bonus, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. Well, that really is um, the the sort of wrap up of the COVID part of our reflections from this year, and you know I think that um, it's it's gosh it's been a year almost two years now of this, and it'll be interesting to see where we're at in another one. I mean I I think part of what I came into twenty twenty one almost dreading was knowing that we'd all just been counting down till the end of twenty twenty. <laughs> there was such a move to like you know, say happy new year in August because people just wanted 2020 to be over and wanted to believe that 2021 was going to be this real fresh start. And look, it has felt different. 2021 has absolutely felt different to 2020. And I think if we hadn't have had, you know, if you didn't live in a place that went through a long lockdown in 2021, you probably were able to kind of move on quite a bit more this year than last year. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we are at the end of 2022. Still needing a rest, I reckon. <laughs> everybody. Just a quick interjection to say, if you're enjoying this conversation and want more, head to australiaremade.com. 
www.thepeacekeepers.org. You can check out some of our written content. You can subscribe for email updates. You can also follow us along on social media. The other thing I'll ask you to do is subscribe to follow the podcast and make sure that you don't miss a conversation. The second nicest thing that you can do for the podcast is spread the word. We are putting this out there through word of mouth rather than a big corporate advertising budget. So we are really relying on people to help get these conversations about solutions and remaking the world that we want into the ears of all of the amazing leaders and people out there just like you. Thanks so much. Back to the show. like I need a sigh after that. All right. So that's the COVID stuff kind of out of the way. And a part of me just wants to apologize to our audience. If you've listened this far, well done. You've listened to another conversation about coronavirus and uh, how it's affected all of our lives. But look, I don't want to end there. I actually want to connect and just say like, how are you going? What else has been going on for you this year? What else have you been thinking about, dreaming about? learning about, um, because it hasn't been the whole story, obviously, in the work that we've done or in the lives that we've led. And, you know, we're pretty lucky you get to do some pretty interesting work. And I think you've got some good stuff to share. So what else has been up for you this year, Millie? Yeah. I mean, look, we could talk for hours about this, so I'll try and, you know, limit my enthusiasm. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as you know, I've had the amazing privilege of talking to so many different people this year about the idea of the public good. So what is what public good do you want available to you in your community and, and who should provide it and questions around that. And, you know, I've heard so many different things from people and most of it has been really like we want places and spaces to connect and to care and to contribute. You know, we talked about that earlier. Um, but one thing just kind of keeps going around in my head um, and that was a, um, a contribution by a woman um, called Kaweni who's she's an artist she's been working with us she's got an amazing blog that we'll be able to link to and you can see the art that she's done as part of this project um, but she talked to women and one of the things they said was you know I want to belong without having to fit in um, and I mentioned this to heaps of people and I just watch everyone's heads nod like oh yeah me too and I think you know it's that recognition of you know, sorry to bring it back to COVID, but in this COVID time and this complex world time, all of us want to be connected and part of things and all of us still just want to be individuals and sometimes, you know, don't want to have to obey exactly what we're told. Um, And, you know, uh, Kaweni um, is a woman of colour and culture. That's how she talks about herself. And I asked her, well, what does it mean belonging without having to fit in? What does that mean to you? And she said, To me, fitting in is when we have to squeeze ourselves into a mould that's already made for us by the dominant culture and there's the fear of being left out so we pretend to be someone else. Belonging is when we can take our whole self, the magnitude of who we are to spaces, knowing we're accepted and we matter when it's safe to be ourselves without compromising. Um, And I thought that that idea of if we can bring our authentic selves to spaces and still be cared for <laughs> um, and still be allowed to contribute, I think has just been something that has really stuck with me from, from this year. Yeah. I love that. You know, and I think um, we've just had a, a 
you know, the first half of our conversation has kind of been focusing a little bit on that sort of the healthy we, if you like, and how we rose to the challenge and where we got it right and where we've got work to do of kind of, you know, um, protecting and maintaining and fostering a healthy we. But within that is also the healthy me. And I'm really fascinated about the the interplay between those two things, right? Because traditionally, the right has sort of been very much into the individual and, you know, personal responsibility. And so therefore, if you're poor, it's your fault or what are the virtues that you have or don't have in your character? And they haven't been as concerned with a kind of healthy we because there is no society. There's just a bunch of healthy individuals or unhealthy individuals. And then the left has again, speaking in very broad brushstrokes, kind of seen it from the flip side. You know, we've been very interested in the collective and in the institutions and all of that. But personal agency, inspiration, creativity, responsibility, the truth is both matter. Like our internal and our external shape our experience and shape our worlds and who we become. And so I think that just realizing that we really can't ignore either of those. And and I wouldn't want to live in a society that was entirely collectivist, where there was no room to be an individual, where you just had to fit in at all costs, where you just had to, you know, go with the herd, whatever that meant. Um, or where you were expected to all be the same, you know, and, and we talk a lot at Australia Remade about how we, we don't think that equality equals, you know, homogeneity and, and everyone having to equal the, the same kind of person, whatever that looks like. So um, I think that's a beautiful insight and that, you know, really it's, it's where our community and our agency kind of get to dance with each other a little bit. And as people are reinventing and we're talking about the great resignation and, you know, all of these places where people are changing their own individual lives, moving out of cities, all of that kind of stuff. It's important to keep those conversations alive, just as we do keep the conversations alive about what kind of community do we want to live in? What kind of country do we want to live in? And I think, you know, that beautifully comes to probably the other really key thing for me this year has been how we kind of kaleidoscope between the local and the national and the global. And, you know, I hear a lot in my work of people actually being quite dismissive of government, wanting government um, and all of the, all that that entails to to do good things, you know, to, to do the job keeper and, you know, to keep the health services going but being quite worried that government isn't up to the task of of what they want to provide great communities. And so there's this sort of real focusing down on local local networks, mutual aid groups, Um, but we've talked about this before, you know, charity is is not, you know, the kindness of strangers is not actually a substitute for structural support. Um, And so how how do we link the joyful local individual identity of your neighbourhood if you're lucky enough to live in a thrilling one um, with the big picture change that has to happen and staying engaged in democratic processes. Um, so I, I think I think working out how those scales interplay is something that we need to be talking more about and providing more kind of obvious links of, ah, oh, this is how you do this local stuff and this is how you can make it more impactful. So it's not just your community that benefits, but, you know, other communities. Yeah. I think is- We're not going to only solve global challenges only on a local level. Yeah. And, you know, GoFundMe is not a social safety net. Like yeah. it's lovely to have these things. It's not bad to to go above and beyond or to be creative and imaginative in how we, we affect the things that we can change. But yeah, couldn't agree with you more. And it kind of goes back again to that interplay between, um, the me and the we, part of that is being able to look upstream 
you know, so um, we're not just pulling people out of the river who are drowning. You know, I talked about this a little bit in the episode that we just had with uh, Dr. Greg Shields on the podcast. As a mental health professional, what is it like to feel like you're constantly at the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff? You know, and we need people at the bottom of the cliff. We need people pulling people out of the out of the river to keep mixing my metaphors terribly. But we also want to look upstream. We also want to look at the top of the cliff and see where we can erect a bridge or a barrier. Like it's not enough to just um, keep funding this, keep treating the symptoms or keep putting more and more money into the level of the effect and not actually looking up at the cause. Um, and I think there was a really interesting example this week actually of um, – you know, the prime minister at a charity giving tree, you know, putting presents for families that couldn't afford presents. And you, you're like, on the one hand, that's really a lovely gesture. On the other hand, how about we raise JobKeeper again, JobSeeker again, um, so that families can actually just afford the presents themselves. You know, there's sort of some interesting um, dynamics there. I think another thing that's kind of come through for me, especially in doing the podcast this year, I was really surprised at the number of guests from really different sectors and kind of backgrounds or walks of life who embodied gentleness in ways that were both somewhat expected, like in the case of Grace Williams, who calls herself the gentle activist, but also really unexpected, like David Ritter, the CEO of Greenpeace, and a friend of mine who listened to the first conversation that we had with him. Um, I believe it's episode two, and said, gosh, I was expecting him to be this like really fanatical, like eco-terrorist type caricature. I mean, she didn't say those exact words, but she was she was really expecting someone very hardline and anti-everything and, and really bullshy. And she wasn't expecting to like him. She wasn't expecting to hear a thoughtful, gentle speaker in that role. And kind of it just changed her whole view of Greenpeace. And I think so often the leaders of cause-driven movements and organizations get reduced to a soundbite, to what can fit on a poster. It's stop this, don't do that. And so one of the things I've really loved this year is actually to have a chance to talk to these people as human beings and to put those conversations out into the world and to realize that there is this reoccurring thread through pretty well all of them around gentleness and vulnerability as a source of power and strength and as a thing that fuels and sustains you. You know, Hannah Maloney talks a lot about that in her work, but just like, how are we going to be in this for the long haul? It's it's actually by allowing our humanity to really shine rather than feeling like we always have to have the armor up and you know the battle lines drawn. And I think, you know, just to kind of end with that it's also that love and joy has come through for a lot of yeah. those people. And I hear that again and again in the public good work, you know, when people are like, we're tired, this is hard. So we're going to have a dance class as one of our workshops as we, you know, smash the patriarchy or whatever it is, yeah. you know, and I think that reminder that that is why we do this hard work. That is why we are tired at times is because this work is worth it because there is love and joy in what we're creating and what we're trying to do. And, um, I think that that has been a real lesson of like we, I th- you know, I'm going to say I think we must, I think we must build that into our work um, because, you know, the future is a bit scary. <laughs> so let's make the present as damn good as possible, you know. <laughs> I think that's that's been something that has come through a lot. And it's also, I mean, you can go through a year of crisis, you can go through a year of disruption or or two years and realise that joy doesn't stop because there's a bad headline or a scary death figure or that they coexist. It has always coexisted in the mess. And I think this year just highlighted that 
war. And so it's an act of renewal and um and kind of sustenance, but it's it's also an act of like a sense of I'm not going to be defined by, you know, it's a, it's a sort of place of positive agency and personal rebellion to say, I'm going to prioritize fun. I am going to prioritize without apologizing for it, rest. And these things are a lot easier to say than they are to do. And, you know, particularly when we are stressed, when we are tired, you know, I think you have to sometimes look at how do we dial down the stress and the pressure in order to let the the joyful stuff kind of bubble up to the surface. But I really do love that way of working and that way of approaching our work. And I just think it bears repeating and reminding as often as possible. So Lily, can we end with something like joyous from yes, your year or your week? Yeah, go for it. Hit me. No, I want to hear from you. Oh no. <laughs> I'm counting on you to be the joy expert that that brings it. Um, something joyful from my week. Okay. Uh, well, currently we are we are now in December, and my um, my children have decided quite on their own to make their own Christmas crackers. So a four year old and a seven year old making Christmas crackers. They're basically raiding my office paper, um, coloring it wildly, writing their own jokes. Awesome. And That's gonna yeah, be it. Yeah. Jo- like, um, what is the fastest vegetable? A running bean. I mean, just jokes that make like. V- little to no sense, but you laugh because they're so bad. And, and, you know, I think my daughter is going to have my entire ream of paper used up if I don't stop her soon, because, you know, all she can imagine is popping these Christmas crackers on Christmas day. And all I can imagine is all of it ending in tears as they realize that you can't actually pop a four paper that belongs in a printer all that easily. But I love that it's bringing them joy. And I think that a lot of people are embracing the holiday spirit early this year as a very deliberate act. What about you? What's bringing a little bit of joy or mirth into your world? Oh, look, I have to say it's learning to speak Russian to a dog. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to have a good one. You should have gone first. Um, So we've been looking after our, uh, we've got neighbours who are from Siberia and they've been having a baby um, and we've been looking after their dog who doesn't actually speak English. Um, (laughs) So after lots of sort of shouting and trying fake Russian accents at this poor dog, um, I I Googled, you know, how to to speak (laughs) Russian to a dog. You actually typed that into Google. And it worked. (laughs) (laughs) So it's this amazing thing of like suddenly speaking the dog language. And I don't know, I got a real thrill out of just that interaction with an animal and the kind of hilarity of like Googling how to speak Russian to a dog and not even think it would work and then it working. So look, that was a delight to me. And, and then so maybe- the dog's ears perk up and it does the command when you say it in Russian? Like yeah, I'm trying to actually picture this. Yeah, I told it to sit and uh, lay down <laughs> and it did. So, you know, and then we got to meet the beautiful baby in that family and see that great joy. So um, that's been in both like beautiful and hilarious uh experience of a Siberian Labrador. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, on that note to everybody listening, look, thank you so much. We started this podcast um, in June this year as a little bit of an experiment and the response has just been incredibly heartwarming and um, exciting and just feeling like there's a role for these kinds of conversations that are both smart, we hope, and kind and where there's room for nuance and exploration and we don't just have to have these kind of really toxic or really boring conversations about politics or the greater good or the lives that we want to have. Um, It has been just 
a delight actually to be able to do this. So I want to thank everyone who's listened and shared and told a friend. Um, And we've even had people write to us completely unprompted and say, you know, we love your podcast. Can we please give you money? Um, Things like that that were just really unexpected. So I just want to say a big thank you and shout out to the listeners. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, what this year has been like for you. You can email us podcast at australiaremade.org. We may read out your email in a future episode. It's just a really nice way to build community. And Millie, thank you to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for, thanks for having these conversations with us and um, everybody we will see you in the new year. the Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.